You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our first Q&A session. As a lot of you may know, on the Bible for Normal People website, we have an Ask Pete section, and people can submit their question. People like you, normal people, can submit their questions, and we're going to get to them in one way or another. We can't promise we get to all of them, but we're going to get to a lot of them either in Q&A sessions like this as a podcast, or sometimes uh, devote an entire podcast to some of the bigger issues or things like that, because we value your questions and we want to talk about what you're interested in talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to answer questions. Yeah. And it's going to be great. <laughs> oh, Jared, wake up. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. All right. Um, so anyway, yeah, we have, we have a bunch of questions. We've only had this up for a while. And we just picked some that we thought might be easier to answer in a short period of time because we're sort of new at this. But we're going to get to some other questions that are a bit longer and very interesting. But for today, we're going to just sort of hit some questions like the following from somebody who prefers to remain anonymous, which is fine. But here's the basic issue. He has come across passages in the Bible that uh, he feels are platitudes, and they're used that way as platitudes, and they just don't match his experience. And so he asks the question, how do we handle a Bible that lies to us? And I've heard that before. What do you think, Jared? Yeah, I think it'll be, you know, he gives a few specific examples that'll be fun to to walk through here. First of all, I don't know if we should have identified that it's a he, because we, we may have outed him. I mean, it, it really <laughs> narrows it down when we use he. But, but he uses specifically the verse, God has plans for you. He paraphrases it. It says, God has plans for you to have a super fantastic life. That's how he read that verse. And I can do all things through Christ. So, he read those and it didn't match his experience in terms of what happens when your life doesn't seem all that great. Is that God's plan for you? And is that fantastic? And can we do all things through Christ? And and so, I mean, I think we should wrestle with the particularities of those verses, but then that bigger question of what do we do with a Bible that lies to us? And is that a fair statement to put on the Bible or is it not a fair statement? So, you can tackle it from whatever side. Well, yeah, I mean... I don't know, you know, the Bible that lies to us, I get the point, I, I understand the sentiment behind it, but I think that comes more from false expectations about what the Bible is prepared to do, because we're taught that, you know, this is God's letter to you, and, you know, this whole Bible is God speaking to you directly, and anything here is applies to you. And you've got the added issue, like Jared just mentioned, that, well, what do these passages even mean, you know, in some sort of a context. But then more importantly, 
Even if you know what they mean, does that mean they transfer into your life sort of automatically without a moment's reflection? And I think that's, a, that's to me, a fundamentally misguided way of thinking about the Bible, that it's just sort of transferable to your moment. You know, when he thinks, I can do all, all things through Christ, you know, that's a common passage that people well, can I talk about. Can I yeah. rant? I'm going to rant, rant, rant on that one okay. for a minute because I, that's just one that I, I think is so easily misunderstood and it's so, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So, I'm sure right now the World Cup is going on and I'm sure there are at least a hundred players that have Philippians 4.13 somewhere on a jersey or on a shoe or something. And it's become this mantra of overcoming. So, it's become part of this kind of overcoming mentality. You can do all things. So, when you're like working out, you're just thinking, I can do all things. But just looking at the Bible in Philippians 4 and what Paul's talking about, it's clearly not about like accomplishing life goals or winning competitions, but it's in the context of contentment. He says, I can be I've learned the the secret of being content, whether I'm well fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do all things. And also, if you in the original language, the verb there do isn't actually there. So we supply that hmm. to make sense of it. But given the context, I think the verb probably shouldn't be do, but should be be content. Given the con- so just even a plain reading when I when I a plain reading when I just look at the 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 context of Philippians 4, I would actually read that as saying, I can be content in all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, anyway, that's just my rant, as I think we've, we've maybe taken that in a direction that Paul was not intending. Yeah, it's almost a bit of a lazy reading, and, and you know, I don't say that too negatively, because I think many of us do well, yeah. lazy readings of the Bible all the time. But, you know, it, just, it doesn't really mean that, and, and then the, these passages become sort of just ways of baptizing your own desires, your own wants. And and also, it's it's obviously misleading because, you know, you can do all things through, what, is, what does all things even mean, right? So, so it's a matter, like Jared said, it's a matter of looking at the context a bit to seeing what it, what it means. But I think more importantly, you have to do the harder work, the theological work of thinking through what it means to sort of apply the Bible to your life. And, you know, Paul is writing letters to people at certain times and places for certain reasons. And I don't think it's a strong reading of the Bible to simply, you know, think of our own context as being similar or equal to that. We have to do the work. And that's the hard part. We have to do the work of really discerning whether the situation I find myself in is comparable, let's say, to whatever Paul is talking about in that letter. And, you know, that doesn't mean the Bible can't be used for your life, but it just means it it takes hard work to do that. You can't just look at a verse and say, oh, gosh. And plus, that makes people like this male uh, feel really bad (laughs) about himself, you know, because the Bible says this. And I don't see this in my experience at all. This is this is not what happens. And I think most people say, yeah, that doesn't happen. And so, he concludes, well, the Bible's lying to me. Now, what do I do? Mm-hmm. So, what I hear you saying is, we, well, what I hear both of us saying, I think when I talk about Philippians 4 and understanding these verses maybe a little bit in context, there's the hard work of actually trying to see how this fits into what the original author, Paul, or, or anyone else is trying to say. But then we can't even stop there. What I hear you saying is then there's this extra work that has to be done when we then say, okay, I know what Paul was intending to say in that context, 
but is my context comparable or is it different? And does that change how I apply this? Would that be a fair way of saying that? Yeah, I think so. And that keeps us from saying things like whether God lies to us or not. It's a matter of not, not a matter of lying because maybe God's not even talking to us, so to speak, right there. That doesn't mean you can't apply this to your life again. But I, I think we short circuit a necessary process by simply looking at these passages and saying they are speaking to me directly. They may be speaking to you indirectly, but you have to almost earn the right to get there, right? And and again, that, that that sounds discouraging to many people, I'm sure, because it's like, well, this is the Bible. This is my guide for life. Okay, that's fine. But that doesn't mean it doesn't take a lot of work. And the evidence for that is over 2,000 years of Jewish and Christian schools of interpretation that have taken a lot of time thinking through the Bible and what it means. It's It's actually not an easy book. It's actually not that straightforward at times, and you really have to think about what's going on here and and what does this mean for my situation right now. Well, I think that actually segues really well into the second question from Zach Zimbelman. We're going to like maybe butcher these we're names. We're going to butcher some of so, these So, so apologies, uh, many apologies to you, but we're going to give it our best shot. So, Zach asks about recommending a good study Bible, and I think that's a good question of, okay, you're saying it takes all this work. Well, what are some tools and resources that are available that might help us do some of this work? So, what have you ran across? Well, I, mean, I love this question because, you know, a lot of people ask it, and I think a good study Bible is a fantastic way of getting on board with, you know, maybe di- answering difficult questions or uh, expanding our knowledge and, you know, just basically finding out things about context, about history, and about all sorts of things. And, you know, for those of you who might not be familiar with it, a study Bible is basically a Bible that has several things in it. It usually has footnotes at the bottom that explain concepts or or gives you other sorts of information. And it has maps and charts and good study Bibles have essays in them that really help explain a lot of things. The, The ones that I recommend, I think there are several good ones out there, but the ones that I recommend are the Interpreter Study Bible, which is for the New Revised Standard Version. Also, the HarperCollins Study Bible, which is likewise the New Revised Standard Version. And then for the Old Testament, the Jewish Study Bible. And there's also a New Testament Study Bible written by Jewish scholars called Jewish Annotated New Testament. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I should know that because I use it all the time. Well, uh, it has, uh, didn't uh, Mark... Mark and Brettler and Adele, no, and um, Amy Jill Levine. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, two of our guests. Yes, exactly. Have, have done that. <laughs> we should prepare for these podcasts better. Yeah, yeah. we should have... Well, we got to... If you haven't already, maybe if you support us on Patreon, we could hire like a fact checker. Or yeah, someone to do all this work for us. Or just someone to actually do the just, podcast. Just, hand, <laughs> yeah. just get hire new hosts who it, do so. the homework. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> no, my, I'm getting old. My brain's tired. So, yeah. but, you know, it's the annotated Jewish New Testament, right? I think it's a Jewish annotated New Testament. Okay. Well, it's some combination. Yeah, if you like Google that, yeah. those four words, you'll find it. And it's yeah. Mark Brettler and Amy Jillivine. And that is also the new, the new Revised Standard Version. The Jewish Study Bible is not. That is a translation from the Jewish Publication Society, mm-hmm. which probably might take some getting used to from for people. But what what I love about those study Bibles is that they're not... One thing is that I think you can trust them to give sort of mainstream, well-recognized explanations for difficulties. Other study Bibles... And I, I don't want to like draw these lines here on the podcast and sound belligerent. I really don't mean that. But 
In my experience, the more conservative study Bibles tend to be more apologetic. They're trying to defend certain something. Certain readings. Yeah. Certain readings, yeah. And and I find that's not helpful because people are sometimes looking at these notes and they, they want help with a real problem, with a real conundrum. And when you find an explanation that seems to smooth over things too quickly, it's like, well, what am I doing here? So... You know, the, the Jewish study Bible is great because the history of Judaism has had traditionally less difficulty with dealing bluntly with some problems. And, you know, I like reading the notes to Exodus and then say, hearing them say things like, yeah, Moses says this here, but he contradicts himself in Deuteronomy. <laughs> you know, uh, which is, you know, the fact is that there are these kinds of theological tensions in the Pentateuch and, and, and to have them addressed is a good idea. So, just to recap, because there were a lot of letters thrown around there. So, a study Bible bases the studies and everything on a certain translation. Mm -hmm. So, you could have some study Bibles that use the NIV version or other versions. So, the ones that you gave, Pete, almost all of them, except for the Jewish study Bible, which uses what we call the JPS version of the Bible, which is a Jewish translation, the rest use the NRSV which you have, I think, said on the podcast is kind of your preferred translation. It's what you would use primarily. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's my preferred translation. I mean, I think almost any translation is fine, but I just found that to have less baggage than others, but it's by no means perfect, but it's fine. I think all translations work well. <laughs> but these study Bibles are really good because of the notes and I just love crisp maps. It just gives you a feel for where towns are and and distances and charts of kings and, you know, lists of parables and cross-references, you know, where else this phrase is used in the Bible and things like that. And also, you know, probably the biggest plus of these study Bibles that I mentioned are the fact that they all have essays in the back. And I mean, a lot of them, like a hundred pages of essays. And, you know, I tell my students that, it's sort of like getting a seminary education for about 30 or $40 because there's a lot of stuff packed into these. And just taking a year or two and finding a good study Bible, and I, mean, I do this. I do this right, during the summer, during the morning. What I do is I'm reading through right now the New Interpreter Study Bible, and I'm reading a chapter, and then I'll read the notes. And then I'll read another chapter and read the notes just to remind myself of some of the issues. And it's very rewarding. And, and I think that's, it's a great question because it's a very, very good way of benefiting from the work of scholars who do this stuff all the time and who are already bringing it into the lives of normal people who just want to read the Bible. Well, and, and I think to maybe answer a question that wasn't asked, but is sort of behind this question and the last, and that is, you mentioned it, not, not to underestimate the, the work that it takes. I mean, it's a book. So there are, there's just a, an undeniable amount of work that has to go into it. You have to know how to read just in general, and you have to know how to read well. And that can be a lifelong pursuit of things like genre and how do you read ancient texts and, help, and how do they apply to today. And the fact, too, that you mentioned maps and there's all these places and there's all these names and it can be overwhelming. But I think it's important, like I think you and I have had experiences, maybe bad experiences of sort of trains of thought that, that said you could short circuit that. And 
you know, no, you don't need to do all that to really understand the Bible. Uh, you, you can have this immediate experience or these other things. And I think that's just a dangerous way. I mean, I don't think I would want to underestimate. Yeah, it, it takes work. That's why we go to congregations every Sunday to learn and why we have study Bibles. And it does. It just takes work. Yeah, I mean, the, the Bible is is not easy. I, I don't mind saying that. It's, it's, you know, it is a book for everyone, but Part of the lie that our one questioner is, I think, you know, what, what he's been affected by is, you know, the, the, the lie that this book is plain and obvious and doesn't take much effort to understand. And we always have to remember how foreign and distant and ancient this book is. Yeah, but it's God's Word. Okay, yeah, but it's God's Word in a historical particular setting that is nothing like ours. And it does take work. And study Bibles are helpful. And it's not just modern people who did that, but people, you know, for hundreds of years in, in Christianity and Judaism have been looking at things like context to try to understand these things better. And, you know, who do we think we are if we can avoid that? You know, I mean, and why would we want to? You know, because there's so much that you can understand about this stuff. And, you know, there's nothing like understanding sort of what a Pharisee is and then trying to understand these dialogues in the Gospels. You know, it's, it's, there's nothing like trying to, you know, g- getting some insight into who the Assyrians were in the Old Testament, and then reading these prophetic oracles that mention the Assyrians and like, oh, I see the point here. <laughs> the Assyrians were horrible people, you know, and, and, or, or looking at ancient creation stories and then reading Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. It's enlightening. It's actually helpful. And it can be like, for, for a lot of people, I know it's actually life-giving because like, this makes the Bible interesting because it has a context and there's nothing like a good study Bible to do that succinctly, right? You don't have to read long commentaries. You don't have to read tons of books unless you have time. But just having a good study Bible, I think, takes care of so many of those problems. And, and you know, if you get ambitious, then you can sort of branch out from that too. But, but for the most part, just a good study Bible for the average Bible reader is a great idea. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning. residential online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. 
Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. We're sorry to interrupt the podcast, but we want to take just one minute to mention two simple ways to support the work we do with the Bible for Normal People. One, just go to iTunes, rate us, and give us a review, but only do it if you like us. If not, just remember this is the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Two, if you haven't already, please check us out on Patreon patreon.com front slash the bible for normal people there you'll find ways to join the community contribute to the discussion and offer your support at various levels last but not least we want to give our deepest thanks to some of the members of our producers group Um, these folks not only email us feedback but they jump on calls quarterly and have supported us financially so thanks to ryan morrison michelle chantos dave carlton Kevin Ming, Teresa Thompson, Philip Gibson, Lelia Fry, Stephen Goulstone, John Thomas, and Michelle Casey. We couldn't do what we do without you, so thank you. Now back to the podcast. That's a good segue, talking about the difficulties in understanding the Bible. The next question from Phyllis, maybe we should just stick with first names. Let's do with first names. That's easy. I'll remember first name, or easier. So, (laughs) Phyllis, and, and maybe I think maybe it's appropriate to just read this, said, I, I recently heard a, a widow say she missed her late husband terribly, but she had assurance that everything came her way was a present from God. Further discussion led to the topic of God controlling or allowing everything from death to sickness, droughts, elections, etc., Because of the hardships I have faced, I no longer believe this doctrine. In fact, I feel it makes God appear cruel. So, can you help me on this? Mm-hmm. So, I think that's a it's one that, that people have been wrestling with with a, a really long time. So, I'm going to turn it over to Pete, who's going to answer it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, the thing is, this is above my pay grade. I can just give my opinion that, you know, Phyllis, I think I agree with you. I, I don't think that God causes or controls directly everything that happens. You know, I, I don't think that's what this is about. I do think that human beings have responsibility and freedom. And I know this comes up an awful lot, especially with people who have had tragic experiences. And, you know, it's comforting to say, you know, I know that God was in this and God caused my infant to die or took my husband or wife away from me. And this is part of God's will. But I'm not sure if we really have the right to say that. See, what the gospel says, in my opinion, isn't that it's okay, God controls all those things, and whatever happens is God's will, and don't question it. I think it's more a matter of God enters human suffering, and that's what the cross is about. It's about God taking part in human suffering, and that doesn't answer the question of why things happen. 
but it does at least open up a whole different way of thinking about it where God participates and understands human suffering. But, you know, this is the mystery of theology. This has been around, this is before Judaism and, the, and this is before the Israelites. These are things that the ancient Mesopotamians were writing about. And, you know, the technical word is theodicy, you know, defending God. Why would God do this? Why would a God who's all good and all powerful let these things happen? You know, and, and that's, that is a conundrum that's been a part of the religious life of pretty much anybody for literally thousands of years. You know, and, and as, I mean, I don't want to sort of give a cheap defense of Christianity or something, but it is the, the faith that I know of, at least, that tries to address that, but in a different kind of way, again, by God's participation in suffering through Christ and, uh, and not giving a philosophical answer, but more something deeper and meatier and experiential. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, I think that's an honest way of looking at that. It, the the other side for me is where I've wrestled is also letting people be where they where they need to be. And I don't know if that's appropriate or not, but you know, there there are a lot of people who are going through really tough times, and s- sort of what gets them through is this belief that that things will work out. So it's always it's balancing that that for some for some people not that makes it right or wrong again I think what we're saying is we don't really know it's above our pay grade here on how all this stuff works but again I, I think just making sure that we're thinking through how to be wise how do we navigate this world in which we don't understand everything and uh, and being careful how we talk about that with with other people because I have my own experiences of sort of coming to this conclusion that God. God's not in charge of any of that. And then I think, you know, maybe derailing some people in a way that wasn't maybe helpful in my journey. So, but yeah, I would agree that we we, uh, we just don't know. Can we say anything else about that? Well, I think, yeah, a couple of things, um, because cause it's such a big and important topic. But I, I appreciate the force of the question, too, like about God controlling or allowing everything from death to sickness, droughts, elections, etc., See, here's the thing, and this is where the Bible, you can never escape the Bible and engaging with and interacting with it. All those things, you could argue, are exactly the things the Bible talks about. That God causes death. That God causes sickness and droughts and famine and disease and war, pestilence and all those things. And and God controls elections. Well, not really because there were no elections back then, but when you look at Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, I guess, where, you know, all governing authorities are ordained by God. But even there, I think we have to just take a step back and not say, well, I'm not going to listen to those Bible passages, but to try to understand, back to the earlier question, something of the context in which these things were spoken, right? And, and this gets us into all sorts of deep stuff about just the nature of the Bible and the nature of God. When, when biblical writers talk about God causing the death of one's enemies so you can take their land, is that something that God, that really describes God? Or is that the way ancient Israelites living in a tribal society would have understood God? I just said a mouthful, and it's a lot to process. But you see, I think this is where this goes very, very quickly. There, there are all sorts of things in the Bible that reflect a given point in time, and we have to do what Jared said is to be wise and to think through together, not just individually, but together, okay, 
what do we do with this information? In other words, do all ruling, do all governing authorities, are they all ordained by God? Not to sound ridiculous, but what about Hitler? What about Stalin? What about people who mean you no good? I mean, that's an easy thing to sort of quote when your favorite person is in the White House, but when he's not, then you ignore that, right? And the thing is, Paul didn't always follow that advice either, because he was in constant trouble with the Roman authorities for proclaiming Jesus, right? So, so the question is, why is Paul doing what he's doing in the book of Romans? Well, we can't get into that, but there are, I think there are contextual reasons for encouraging this body of believers that may already be not getting along with each other, living in a city that already has a track record of an emperor tossing Jews out, and they just recently came back, where Paul might be saying, let's not make waves or cause trouble right now, because strategically, we have the potential here to influence the world with, you know, being, with the church being in this nerve center called Rome. So, I mean, in other words, there were contextual reasons for why Paul might have said what he said. But to use that as a blanket statement, I mean, we wouldn't have our country. What we do is rebel against authorities, you know? So, anyway. Yeah. Well, and to bring it back to the, to the question about what, you know, Pete said, theodicy, defending God, or other people maybe call it the problem of evil. Just to articulate maybe the problem, for some people who haven't really thought about this too much, is uh, I, I think I first heard about this because I read a long time ago, I might have been a teenager, I don't know when it came out, but Rabbi Kushner's book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, and he, he sets it up really nicely, not that I necessarily even remember what his kind of solution was, but his, his premise is, how do we account for bad things, or how do we account for evil if God is all good or all loving, is all powerful and all knowing? So, it seems like he, his point in that book is, something seems like it's got to give. If God is all powerful and all knowing and all loving, it seems like he could have done something about this evil. And yet, here we are, we have evil, and we have bad things that happen all the time. So, how do we how do we account for that? So, that's really at the root of that question that goes back, as you said, Pete, all the way back to Mesopotamian times, early Greek times. Most major civilizations and religions have had to wrestle with this at some level. So, And it's more difficult if you're a monotheist. If you're a polytheist, you can always blame it on one god blame going it on the other his god. own, and you have, to, you have to get some other god on your side to do battle with him or her. But when you have one god, see, now the problem becomes even more acute. So, it's our, our two-party system in America is a way to deal with the problem of evil, right? Yeah, right. We just blame it on the other side. Blame it on the other party. <laughs> right. But, you know, in religion, we... Well, you see, actually, you know, again, not this is, to me, this is a, such an interesting topic, but one reason why you have an increase in divine activity in Judaism a couple hundred years or so before the time of Christ is because, you know, the, the, the Jews became more strongly convicted of a monotheism, but then you had to have a Satan figure, also called, you know, Belial and, and some other names, and you had a more active divine angelic realm, and you, you had a lot of activity in there because, you know, even though God is ultimately in charge— to have a bad divine creature of some sort takes a little bit of the heat off, right? And 
And, you know, that's why, you know, we, we can't find our car keys. We blame Satan. That's a little ridiculous. But, you know, it's it's easy to sort of blame someone else for why truly bad things happen. It beats laying it on God's, you know, lap. But it's not that easy. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a difficult, difficult problem. And again, for me, the only answer that I can think of is not really an answer, but it's just a perspective, which is Christianity is the only religion I know of where God participates in human suffering somehow and recognizes it and doesn't fix it, but also, you know, rises above it. So it's not that, you know, God allow, if, you know, if you believe in God enough, bad things won't happen to you because they clearly do, right? But it's like, no matter what happens, the Spirit of God is with you and is aware of your suffering. You know, again, that doesn't answer the question, but it's, it's almost like the best that I can do, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And on the conceptual level, too, you know, a lot of work has been done in what's called like open theism or process theology uh, around the, the nature between control and love. And, and if God is, is loving, is that God capable of control? What are those things, open theism? Yeah, so open theism, uh, we'll just stick with open theism because it's a little easier to get into uh, than process theology, but just the understanding that maybe God doesn't know or or control the future. And so, what, what happens because, now, it's as interesting because it's not just philosophical or out there, but the Bible itself presents God as coming to know things or regretting things. Oftentimes, especially in the, in the Old Testament, God's presented as being surprised by things, which means maybe God didn't know the future in that context. So, in, in some ways, this idea, I, I remember when this idea first came out in evangelicalism with Clark Pinnock, mm-hmm. maybe, yeah. and I remember him, him saying, like, well, I'm just, I'm rooting it, I'm trying to read the Bible and what it says, and it seems like God doesn't know the future. And so, this open theism comes out of that, where uh, that, that is one possible route that that a lot of um, scholars are going and trying to understand some of this. So, so I guess the open part means the um, future is open. Yeah, yeah. It's not determined. It's open, and God doesn't control the future and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. So, so you know, I mean, whatever you think of that, it's an attempt to solve a problem. Right. It's it's a theology that's trying to wrap its arms around something and give some sort of a coherent answer. But uh, at the very least, we should avoid. The cheap answers are like, well, God controls all this because God's sovereign and God does everything. I, I think, you know, a moment's reflection and hanging out with people who have suffered a lot might, like, like our questioner, like Phyllis, you know, that, that sort of, that, that melts away pretty quickly. And, it's, it's, and, and then you right away you find yourself in a conversation that's been going on for literally millennia. Yeah. And welcome. You know, it's here you are. Yeah, you, you, every time, I mean, just on all the, the reading I've done on it, it's like you, you think you answer, you solve one problem by coming up with a solution, and it really just creates several more problems. And so that humility. And, and you know, you mentioned it, Pete. I think just the wisdom for me is understanding that these things are deeply personal and painful for for a lot of people and we we can't just theorize you know theorize about it and say oh let's just have this heady conversation about whether god's in control when people were actually suffering and in the midst of that suffering and and in that way the biblical portrayal as you said is in some ways the the wisest way or at least maybe one of the most loving ways which is just to sit in the suffering mm-hmm. to participate in it and not always try to answer it or right. solve it right so yeah. All right, well, not to get kind of whiplash, but the next question takes us a little different direction. And it comes from Kelly, who just asks, could we talk about the significance of baptism? Could we? I think we can. 
Yeah. Significance for what, I guess. I mean, what it means, you know. Uh, it's like such a cynical way to start. I know, a bit significance. Significance for what? What are we going to talk about? <laughs> it's, not, it's not significant. Okay, end of story. Done. Yeah. Now, I mean, my kids are baptized, and I like the idea because it's, it's, it's a sign. I think it's a sign of God's presence in a family. That's why I, I'm I'm an advocate of infant baptism. I don't think it's wrong, but I understand people who don't agree with that. That's fine with me too. One of my kids was baptized as an infant and as a 14 year old because the first one didn't take, so she had to do it again. Yeah, she must have been really bad. <laughs> bad parents, but you know, it's just it's, all that is fine with me. It, you know, I don't really have a big theological stake in when you're baptized, but. I think it it is a sign of cleansing and of connection to God and it's it's not something that saves you although in the New Testament you have language like that but again the context is different there you have adults who are proclaiming Christ and and participating in a visible ceremony you know by which they are saved because they're you know connected to Jesus at that point but you don't really have you know and how do you raise your kids now? You know, it's just, it's a different, it's a different moment in time. And, you know, the question of baptism and significance, that's something that theologians have had to think about subsequent to that. Like, you know, that it's a different kind of question in the opening moments of the church than it is 2000 years later. Yeah. So, I think I had a major shift on this. When I was a pastor, we had a, uh, this would have been, I don't even know what year it is, so this would have been more than 10 years ago, we had a, a gay couple come and want to be baptized. And so, you know, we got, you know, we had about five or six of us pastors at the church, is a large church, and so we had a brainstorm of like, what do we do? We have a gay couple that want to be, okay. So, we thought, yeah, we can we can baptize them. That's, that's good. That's fine. So, we did that. And it's sort of like, okay, welcome to God's family. That's great. Uh, and then, like, two months later, they wanted to be members of the church. And we had this brainstorm again. And for me, it was, like, one of those definite light bulb moments where I was like, well, of course. Like, we just welcome into God's family. Are we going to now be like, oh, yeah, but we're a little, we got, our rules are a little stricter than God. <laughs> but that's actually how it turned out. And they were like, well, we could, we baptize them, but we, they can't be members of the church. And so that just shifted my understanding of baptism where I think we're afraid of baptism in, in at least in my tradition we were a little afraid of it because it was saying like you're in like it would like you said it's it's like this sign that you're now part of God's family and family is forever like when you're in you're in like your blood like I didn't choose my kids and I can't I can not talk to them that that doesn't make them not my kids. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're we almost neuter that significance or we make it less valuable because we're scared of what it means. Like, well, what happens if people go out and they just are crazy and heretics and do their own thing after this? So it's almost like we make this contingency and we add things to it like church membership, mm-hmm. like something we can control. Like, well, you can be a part of God's family for your whole life, but we're going to make it harder on you to be a part of this family. <laughs> so anyway, it just it cheapened it for me a little bit. So I think for me the significance, you know, you mentioned infant baptism. I was born and raised a Southern Baptist, so we were, you know, immersion when you when you say that prayer of salvation, that's when you get baptized. And that experience when I was a pastor helped me to realize like, no, this is about a symbol of being part of God's family. Mm-hmm. And it it took on a, a deeper significance to me and made me also question this idea of who's in and who's out mm-hmm. and who gets to make that distinction. So, And speaking of immersion, <laughs> you want to get into a fight with some Christians, talk about the mode of baptism, but 
you know, in my opinion, in the New Testament, it's absolutely immersion because it's symbolic of dying and then rising. And, and that, for those of you who are very uninitiated, that just means you get dunked all the way under the water. Right. Yeah, like out there on a, in a creek or something. Or if your church has a swimming pool in the front, which a lot of them do, that's, you, you go under, and it is symbolic of dying to yourself and rising to new life in Christ. It is symbolic of that. And I think symbols are very important, which is why I think, you know, baptism is a great thing to and, do. And if you don't live in Pennsylvania, a crick is a creek. Yeah. <laughs> a crick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but here, here's the thing. It's, then the question, the theological question arose in the church. What about kids? You don't immerse, you don't dunk a newborn, right? Well, then you shouldn't baptize them. Yeah, but you know, this, this is, and I appreciate this, this is how Calvinists argue about this, and I think they make a very fair point that in the Old Testament, children are part of the covenant family through the males by means of circumcision. So, if circumcision is a sign of the old covenant and it's very inclusive, why would the new covenant be less inclusive? Why don't you baptize infants as a sign of their participation in the covenant family? Of course, they always make up their own minds, just like Israelites did when they got older. That's not the point. It's not a once saved, always saved thing, but it's a symbol of being a part of the family. You know, I remember when our oldest, our son, he was in preschool and you know, we were trying to raise our kids as semi-Christians somehow, you know, and whatever that meant. But I remember him going and, and asking, you know, his mom, you know, you know, what is God like, right? Which is, you know, a wonderful question for a four-year-old to ask. But I remember visiting his preschool, and there was a wonderful girl, one of his friends, would say, oh my God, about, oh my God, look at that. Oh, look at, oh my God. It was, oh my God, oh my God. It's like, And she's four, and of course... She's getting that from home. And I, I don't mean that in a judgmental sense, but the thing is that what struck me then is that baptism is a sign that the child is in a different environment. And I think to me, that's very important. That's why, you know, I, I you know, my granddaughter was just dedicated. I'm fine with that. It's wonderful. But I think a difference between dedication and baptism is you dedicate someone in the hopes that one day they will be part of the family of God. I think baptism is, is stronger than that. It's that you already are. Now, life happens and you'll have to make decisions and whatever, but you have a different starting point than others. And, and, I, and, and, I, and I hold on to, the, there's a sacredness to that, that, you know, even with adult children, I still hold on to that, that there's something about that that's not mystical or magical, but still meaningful. Well, and it comes back to, I think, tradition and symbols were, we were taught not to put any significance in those. Everything was about personal decision and then sort of reading the Bible in a moral way to live a good life. And so, yeah, so I, I had to reconstruct as I got older how to have any of those things mean anything. Communion, all these things, like my tradition held them, took them very seriously, but they sort of gutted all the reasons why you would take it really seriously, which was always confusing to me. Like, we got really solemn and it became this really important thing that we then ate a cracker and a juice. And then my pastor would go out of his way to make sure I knew that, well, that's just a symbol. It's not really, it's not really anything significant. Well, then why are we like hush-hush and like somber and it becomes this thing? It's, we were in a bit of a crisis, I think, as a faith tradition where we didn't know exactly how to make this mean anything anymore. And only as I got older and, and talk about ritual and talk about meaning and inclusion in a family 
and how that can be symbolic. But I kind of learned how, how to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody, thanks for listening to our first Q&A. There'll be many more. We had fun doing this. And as always, we're thankful to those of you who, well, we're thankful for all of you, yeah. but especially to those of you <laughs> who support us at Patreon and visit us on the website and engage with us. We have a lot of fun creating this community, and we're grateful for all of you. Yeah. And uh, just to ask for your participation more, if you do have other questions, we, we make no guarantees that it will ever be here on the podcast or that we will ever respond to them. But if you wanted to submit questions, feel free to do that. Again, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com. Is it its own page? They can click on Ask Pete. Ask Pete, yeah. And you click on that, you answer some questions, sign away the rights to your firstborn child, and voila, we have the questions in our inbox. <laughs> so feel free to do that. We love to get those questions. We want to know what questions you're asking, and, and we get questions that cause us to think about things in a new way. All right, folks. Thanks again. See you next time.